It's Leap Day, February 29th, 2024. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellams. I'm Matthew Moore. Today, a group of hobbyists turned scientists helped count birds in northwest Arkansas. This sort of data collection would fall under citizen science, which is any way that non-career scientists, so citizens, can collect data for scientific purposes. Plus, the oddities of celebrating an annual event every four years. When you're a little kid, you look so forward to birthdays and stuff. And I remember people saying, well, you don't have a birthday this year. You don't get a birthday party. And that would just upset me so bad. (laughs) And a farewell from the chief. We're in an, an incredible place because KUAF has this loyalty, because it grew organically in our community, and it's because it's been strong because of community support. KUAF's general manager is moving to NPR, and exit interview on today's show, First the News. The Walton Arts Center presents To Kill a Mockingbird, on stage April 16th through the 21st. Harper Lee's novel has been adapted for the stage by Aaron Sorkin, directed by Bartlett Schur and stars Richard Thomas as Atticus Finch. Tickets and information at waltonartcenter.org. This is Ozarks at Large for Leap Day 2024. I'm Matthew Moore. Ozarks at Large is a production of 91.3 KUAF. Late last year, the Northwest Arkansas Audubon Society utilized amateur bird watchers to gather vital local data for scientific analysis. The initiative is called a bird count. The Count's leader was ornithologist Mitchell Pruitt, who joined Ozarks at Large's Jack Travis in the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio One after he finished compiling data to explain what these newly gathered statistics might mean for birds in our backyard and across the nation. Every December, citizen scientists bundle up and travel around Fayetteville. Their eyes are skyward. Their ears are primed for chirps, squawks, and songs. These scientists are bird watchers, members of the Northwest Arkansas Audubon Society, and they are participating in the Christmas bird count. The count is an annual tradition in which groups of bird watchers, or birders, gather to, well, count birds. The idea of a winter birding expedition is an old one. The idea of it was comes from um, the 19th century when groups of people around the turn of the year would get together and form smaller hunting parties that were competing um, to see how many birds and other animals they could shoot and kill and bring home. That's Mitchell Pruitt. He's a Ph.D. candidate at the University of Arkansas who researches owl migration. He headed the Northwest Arkansas Christmas bird count this year. He says that around the turn of the century, there was a shift in focus toward conservation efforts of species that naturalists noticed were declining. And around 1900, several ornithologists got together and took this decades and possibly centuries-old concept of uh, winter hunt and turned it into the Christmas bird count where um, small parties of bird watchers would get together and go out for a set amount of time and um, count the birds, the number of species and the number of individuals within a species that they could see during whatever that set time is. Jump forward to the present day and the once Christmas bird hunt has transformed into a standardized 
widespread survey method assisting ornithologists in their conservation efforts. The count now has birders working throughout a single day, counting birds in a 15-mile radius from a predetermined point in their area. Pruitt says researchers are able to gather and examine a wide range of data thanks to people participating. This sort of data collection would fall under citizen science, which is any way that non-career scientists, so citizens, can collect data for scientific purposes. And of course, there are some career scientists involved in this too, um, but it's, it's meant for sort of the general public to collect the data to be used later because scientific studies are great, but a limiting factor often is how much data we can collect across space and time. And so by drumming up business in the public and bird watchers, we can collect more data across larger spaces and across larger time periods to be used in future scientific analyses. The count has grown quite a bit since its early days. The 2023 count marked the initiative's 123rd year and included 2,625 separate counts across the United States, Canada, Latin America, the Caribbean, and Pacific Islands. Over 79,000 birders and citizen scientists joined the effort to collect data in those counts. Fayetteville's count isn't especially large, but it isn't the smallest either. Pruitt says they usually have anywhere from 30 to 50 participants armed with binoculars, notepads, and birding apps on their phones. During the day, different groups of people um, will go out into different sections of the circle and count the birds that they see. And that data comes back and is compiled and is submitted to the National Audubon Society that runs the database for Christmas bird count data. And in that database, you log effort data as well, which is important. So it's like how many how many people were out and how many hours were they out, how many miles did they cover, that sort of thing. And in order to sort of come up with meaningful estimates of what the, the count data means, and using that information, um, you can look at trends over time, which is sort of what all of this boils down to, is like the why, why do we go to this effort every year to count birds at this set period of time? Um, and by having a set sort of schedule to count birds on across years and a set place, so the count circles to count birds within, um, we can really use that data across time to look at trends and populations, which is what is super important. Pruitt says, citizen science projects like the Christmas bird count have drawn attention toward alarming trends over the past few decades. Bird populations are rapidly declining, even in our own backyard. Zooming out of northwest Arkansas, the American Bird Conservancy reports that since 1970, North America has lost nearly 3 billion birds. Roughly 90% of that loss came from 12 families of bird species, including sparrows, finches, and warblers. These are all common backyard birds that play a large role in local ecosystems. They eat insects that many people consider pests, they pollinate plants and spread seeds, and they even provide a food source for larger birds of prey and mammals. Pruitt says many factors are contributing to this national decline. One of the more concerning ones is uh, climate-related. 
And there's evidence that shows in, in migrants, not just birds of prey, but also migratory songbirds. So warblers, various sparrows, bluebirds, those sorts of that sort of cohort of birds, that migration is shifting over time. And this is thought to be primarily climate related. So in some species, we see um, what we would call short stopping, which is not migrating as far, or we see advanced migrations in the fall, so species leaving earlier, or um, delayed migrations in, in the spring, and the flip-flop of those. These negative trends are present in northwest Arkansas, too, a region where rapid urbanization has taken hold, leaving native species struggling to find a place. I can think of some examples that come immediately to mind here in northwest Arkansas are grassland species. So historically, um, much of northwest Arkansas, especially as you move further northwest towards like Centerton and, and northwestern Benton County, was historically tall grass prairie, or at least patches of prairie mixed with woodland. So essentially still prairie and grassland. And a lot of those species have declined um, pretty drastically in northwest Arkansas. One bird species has become a particularly hot topic with conservationists. It's a small quail called the northern bobwhite, which lived in the grasslands of northwest Arkansas. The species has not been documented in the bird count for several years. Pruitt says the disappearance of the bobwhite's habitat directly affects the people living in the area where these small quails used to call home. Our prairies in this region, um, especially further south here towards Fayetteville, the prairies that we had, um, to some extent, were also seasonal wetlands. So they were seasonally dry grasslands during like the summer months, for example, and then through winter and spring were seasonally wet. And those wetlands are important for things like water control and as well as providing refuge for lots of species. But as far as sort of a direct human impact, since that's what that's what humans care about is what does it mean for me? Um, they were they were great habitats for sort of flood flood control and water control. And so the loss of those habitats is a loss to us, really. We don't, we don't realize it when we're raising it for a neighborhood. Um, but after the fact, when you have to pay buku money for flood insurance or, or your driveway floods three times a year, we're really missing those wetlands and those grassland habitats that we had here. Uh, and so are the bobwhite that were also there. We can make startling discoveries about our own lives by analyzing trends in the natural world and learning how to better protect the species we share our planet with. Citizen science initiatives like the Christmas Bird Count allow regular folks like you and me to collect data for professional scientists to analyze, proving everyone can play a helpful role in conservation. Pruitt says those who are interested may go a step further to help birds in their area. By mixing diverse habitats alongside cities and towns, we give wildlife a fighting chance. Development is inevitable, but we can still manage to be sustainable in our growth. Urbanization is going to come for us all. <laughs> I think it's, it's a matter of really working to make the environment that we live in as much as a diversified matrix as possible. 
And I think Northwest Arkansas has done that really well. Um, we have a great um, diversity of green space mixed in with the suburban and the urban areas. And I, I think that something that the, the general public can do is make sure that the importance of those areas is known, that, that we don't forget about them when, when we see the next opportunity for urbanization, that as, as the urbanization comes, we also remember that it's important to balance it with native habitat patches sort of mixed in the matrix. There are a lot of actions that anyone can take to make their own yards more habitable for birds and other animals. That's having um, what we would call in the sciencey lingo habitat heterogeneity, <laughs> which is is uh, that's the the fancy term for not just having a, a monoculture grass yard, but have a yard that's broken up with gardens and shrubs, and maybe you have a a bird bath or some sort of water feature so that things can um, drink. Um, Maybe you have a feeding station for your birds or your squirrels. But within that, more importantly, having a diversity of habitats that these animals can use. So not just, not just having the nice grass yard, but having some patches of shrubs or patches of um, wildflowers and other native vegetation, trees, that sort of thing. The 2023 Christmas bird count tallied 671 total species across the United States. In Northwest Arkansas, Pruitt says they counted 102 unique species. You can visit our website, ozarksatlarge.com, to dive into specific data from this year's count. However, to stoke your curiosity with an example, birders counted over 560 Canadian geese in our area, and that's not even the most numerous species. You can also find more information on our website about the Northwest Arkansas Audubon Society and how you can get involved in other citizen scientist initiatives. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jack Travis. Time now for today's Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report. I'm Paul Gatling. The University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences has established its eighth institute the UAMS Institute for Community Health Innovation. UAMS officials say the institute aims to address health disparities by conducting community-based research and implementing community-driven programs across Arkansas. Based in Northwest Arkansas, the institute will have offices in multiple cities across the state. Dr. Pearl McElfish, a respected UAMS College of Medicine professor with over two decades of experience in community health programs and research, is the Institute's founding director. That story is up on our website this week, and you can learn more at nwabusinessjournal.com. After the break, we will hear from Bentonville real estate developer Alexandra Torado. This is the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report. Support for the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report is provided by the Arkansas State Chamber of Commerce and Associated Industries of Arkansas. The Chamber's mission is to promote a pro-business, free enterprise agenda and prevent legislation, regulation, and rules that hinder business. More at ArkansasStateChamber.com. Arkansas Blue Cross and Blue Shield. 
For more than 70 years, Arkansas Blue Cross and Blue Shield has used its knowledge and compassion to create healthcare solutions for individuals and businesses. Arkansas Blue Cross and Blue Shield. Live fearless. More information at ArkansasBlueCross.com. First Security is proud to be only in Arkansas, and it shows in your banking experience. They offer smart solutions for personal and business banking, plus convenient services and community investment. That's because First Security is 100% focused on serving customers all across the state and nowhere else. It's local banking with local commitment. First Security. Bank better. Member FDIC. Equal housing lender. Development firm Sun Group led by President and COO Alexandra Torado, is nearing completion of its first project in the United States, and that is in downtown Bentonville. Oak One, a $17.5 million townhome development, is situated on a half-acre site along Southwest B Street. It comprises two buildings housing 15 units, ranging from 1,650 to 2,900 square feet, offering an upscale residential experience. Here is Torado discussing Sun Group's background, what brought the company's investment dollars to Northwest Arkansas, and what makes Oak One unique in the market. We have a history of doing large-scale development internationally, specifically in China. Also using the name Sun Group, but it was uh, the word for Sun Group in Chinese, so we actually use the same uh, words, but in English, and this is our first project in the United States and specifically in Northwest Arkansas. Wow. Okay. So from China to Northwest Arkansas, how did Sun Group get involved in Northwest Arkansas's development and, and growth? And, and by extension, I guess sort of the same question for you. What brought you to Northwest Arkansas? Yeah. So, um Long story short, my husband, who is the CEO of Sun Group, uh, he was a real estate developer in China doing large-scale development in China. His last project was completed in 2018, over 3 million square feet, 2,200 residential units, and 7,000 people live there now. Uh, It's a completely different world in China. Where we live, there were 30 million people. And uh, he... After 2018, he thought real estate in China uh, was probably not the future for him. If you see a lot of other developers still in China, it's not a good time for them. <laughs> so we, we started looking outside. And probably like everybody else's story, you just get a little lucky when you stumble upon northwest Arkansas. Mm-hmm. And we just we just got lucky. And uh, 2020 happened, and my parents, who had never moved out of North Carolina before, moved to Northwest Arkansas, so this was supposed to be a a quick trip, and let's just visit my parents really quick, and it turned into, this is the place for us, this is the real estate market for us, and um, let's move here and have a family and business here. So you mentioned that first project in downtown Bentonville, um, Oak One, called about a $17.5 million townhome project. Uh, what makes this a good investment for Sun Group? How did you decide that downtown Bentonville was where you wanted to plant your um, your first flag? Well, there's just so much momentum and excitement in downtown Bentonville. We laugh and we call it 
uh, Little China just because there are so many cranes in the air. And I think there was even a, um, a statistic out that per capita, uh, Northwest Arkansas or Bentonville has the most uh, cranes per capita um, or very close to New York. Um, so there's just so much excitement here, and we love everything about downtown Bentonville. We love the concentration on building a bikeable walk-to-work culture, being next to pocket parks, walking to your um, uh, restaurants and your cinema. So we wanted to find the perfect project and location that encapsulated the essence of downtown Bentonville, and I think we did that with the location on 500 Southwest B Street. What is unique about Oak One? How do you stand out with this initial project of yours? Yeah, so not only all the great things about location that I just um, mentioned, but we are excited about bringing an, what I consider an elevated home experience to northwest Arkansas. I think everybody knows that downtown Bentonville has a million-dollar price tag on it right now, um, but a lot of these times you, you don't necessarily feel like it's a million-dollar home. And what we're able to bring to the market is some amazing finishes that really haven't been seen here. Our flooring is herringbone flooring like you might see in a Manhattan or a New York. Um, our chandeliers are crystal teardrop chandeliers. Some are even 24K gold-plated. Um, even the toilet paper rack in your primary bathroom is 24K gold-plated, if you can imagine that. Uh, smart toilets throughout your ceiling fans are not your average ceiling fans. They look like chandeliers and have retractable blades. So when you don't need those blades anymore, it just leaves a chandelier look. So, and that's just, I could probably go on and on, um, but we're excited about bringing a lot of finishes um, to Northwest Arkansas and hopefully making the home experience a lot more wonderful and hopefully allowing buyers to feel like when they're paying for a more expensive home that they're getting more than they're paying for. Yeah. And aside from those details that you believe are unique to the market, you've got something else coming up on Friday that is somewhat unique, or at least I think it's unique. It's a, an art installation at an active construction site. Why is that part of the construction process? Tell us about that. Yeah, well, first of all, um, it, it really speaks to um, our project is about the essence of downtown Bentonville, and Bentonville is all about art and infusing art into every aspect of daily life. You have crystal bridges, and you just um, – art is everywhere. And so we wanted to bring that into the construction um, process and make construction a lot more beautiful, uh, hopefully uh, allow our neighbors to think construction sites are a lot more beautiful. Cause I know there's so much construction happening downtown, and developers might love it. Anybody in this industry loves it, but the people living beside us and having to deal with that for a year don't necessarily enjoy it as much as we do. Um, so it comes from that place of wanting to thank the community, and it also comes from being inspired a lot by the Urban Land Institute and all of the lectures that I've attended from the past two years of being in Northwest Arkansas about placemaking and bringing art more into the front end of the development instead of an afterthought at the very end. 
Dayton Castleman with Rogers architecture firm Verdant Studio designed the art installation Tulips for Bentonville. It'll be unveiled at the Oak One construction site during an event on Friday afternoon starting at 2.30. You can learn more at oakonenwa.com and of course read our reporting at nwabusinessjournal.com. I'm Paul Gatling and that's the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report. Until next time, thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Karen Edwards and my birthday is February 29th. Hi, I'm Becky McCain and my birthday is February 29th. Hi, my name is Tessa Olney and I was born on February 29th. Do you have the phenomenon where people very specifically remember your birthday because of its uniqueness too? I randomly will have people be like, I remember the day you were born, like my mom's friend. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I hear I hear from Peace Corps buddies and college buddies, and they tend to remember your birthday when, when it only comes around every four years. When you're a little kid, you look so forward to birthdays and stuff. And I remember... People saying, well, you don't have a birthday this year. You don't get a birthday party. And that just upset me so bad. (laughs) The first time that I remember is at my fourth birthday party. I had a birthday party with a friend who also had their birthday on leap year. We grew up really close together when we were little. And mostly I just remember that I was very upset (laughs) because people kept telling me, it's like you're turning one. And as a four-year-old, that was not what I wanted to hear. The eighth was my only that I remember, like, birthday party where several friends came over and actually had a birthday party. So that was a very good memory. I don't remember my 16th. That's when I got my driver's license. So that was probably overrid all the joy of everything else. I can remember looking at the calendar and thinking, there's a 29 on, in February this year, you know? And yeah, my mom and dad always made it special. I went to a very small college in Nebraska, Dana College, and there I graduated with like 95 people. And my roommate had a birthday on February 29th. It's like, I think that's the only person I've ever met who had a birthday on February 29th. Actually, in the small town that I was born in, in Kansas, There were, I think, seven babies born that day, which already is like seven babies born on the same day. (laughs) And this hospital is wild, but there were seven of us born, which is kind of crazy. You know, my grandkids, they just don't understand, you know, I'll say, well, I'm going to be 15 or I am 15. And they're like, what? (laughs) You know, so (laughs) at my last birthday, actually, Chad, my husband, threw a huge surprise party for me um, here in St. Louis and a bunch of people, family and friends, like, flew in. I had no idea what we were doing. And it's kind of crazy because now, like, that was February 29th of March 2020. So quite a few of our family and friends were like, we really remember your birthday party because that's the last that we took before everything shut down. It's the last place they went was St. Louis. One year, one of my kids' father worked for the news station, and he came out and interviewed us, and we all had so much fun. I did the splits, and they said, and and he led it by saying, how can a 16-year-old be teaching? I may have been 15 or 14, I don't know how old I was, 14. How can a 
eight-year-old be teaching? And that's how he led into it. With my students, it was always really fun because I taught first grade. And so for the last five years of teaching, most of the time at some point in the year, I was the same age as my students. And so my first grade students loved to tell their parents that Mrs. Olney was also six years old, just like them. We have always celebrated on the 28th. So really, actually, when I think of the 28th, I think of that as my birthday because I've had more birthdays on the 28th. I almost always celebrate on February 28th. I don't really know why. That's just kind of what I always did growing up. But I had friends when I was in high school that would get so defensive about what day my birthday should be celebrated. It would be like, happy birthday, Tessa. And they'd be like, you have to wait till tomorrow. What would be fun? What would a 17-year-old do? Let's let's rent the skate place. But my mom was like, I'm 88 years old. I'm not going to go to the skate place. Enjoy it. I mean, it, it is a special, it is a special day. So just enjoy it. That was Karen Edwards, Becky McCain, and Tessa Olney. This is Ozarks at Large. Tomorrow, a conversation with members of the creative team behind Cambodian Rock Band, the latest production at T2. This is Ozarks at Large. This is Leo Uribe, Professor of Music and Associate Dean at the University of Arkansas Fulbright College of Arts and Sciences, expanding our musical boundaries with Sound Perimeter. We open Sound Perimeter today with James Bake, cello, and Minyi Choi piano performing Gabriel Forez Pavillon, Butterfly, Opus 77, from a 2022 live concert featuring semi-finalists for the Queen Elizabeth Cello Competition in Brussels, Belgium. This dazzling piece, composed in 1894, conveys a sense of lightness, evoking the fluttering movements of a butterfly in flight.
That was James Bake Cello and Mingyi Choi Piano performing French composer Gabriel Forest Pavillon Butterfly Opus 77. Mel Bonis, born Melanie Helene Bonis, was a pioneering musician of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Despite facing significant gender-based discrimination in the male-dominated music world of her time, discrimination that still happens today, by the way, she composed a vast body of work encompassing various genres, including piano music, chamber music, choral works, and orchestral pieces. Bonnie's music is characterized by lush harmonies, expressive melodies, and remarkable sense of lyricism. Let us listen to her account of a butterfly's movement in her piece called also Papillon, written in 1902, one of a series of character pieces for piano, each inspired by different aspects of nature and emotions. That was pianist Evelyn Grandi performing Papillon by French composer Mel Bonis from a 2015 live performance sponsored by Fame Musicale, a non-profit organization based in Switzerland committed to spreading the music by women. Quote, you know the peace you bring, you show me the secrets and the ways to love every moment of the day the flowers you kiss all come to life, end quote. These are lyrics from Herbie Hancock's Butterfly, originally released in his 1974 album Trust. This song, described by radio host Nicole Sweeney as a blend of beauty, funk and groove, is taken to another dimension in the voice of jazz artist Gretchen Parlato. Let us listen to an excerpt of her rendition of Butterfly from her 2014 album Life in New York City. Thank you. 
Today, in Sound Perimeter, we allowed butterflies to captivate our imaginations with their exquisite beauty and graceful movements translated into music by our featured composers and performers, Gabriel Foray, Mel Bonis, Herbie Hancock, James Bake, Evelyn Grandy, and Gretchen Parlat. Find more about them in our program notes. This is Lia Uribe, Professor of Music and Associate Dean at the University of Arkansas Fulbright College of Arts and Sciences, expanding our musical boundaries with Sound Penimeter. Sound Penimeter is a show written and hosted by me and produced by Sofia Nurani and KUAF 91.3 in Fayetteville, Arkansas. This segment is dedicated to diverse voices in and around music. I hope it will expand your knowledge and connection to inclusive sounds and let music infiltrate your lives and transform your realities. Enjoy your day. You don't know the peace you bring. You show me the secrets and the ways to love every moment of the day. And flowers you kiss all come to life to give all the love we This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kelms with me in the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio, Lee Wood. Hi, Kyle. What title do I give you? Um, free Spirit. <laughs> um, see, well, so starting um, on Monday, March 4th, I'll be a Senior Manager for Business Development with the NPR Member Network. Which means you will no longer be general manager at KUAF. Sadly, that's true. So what I get to do, and I've done this far too many times in 35 <laughs> years here, <laughs> is do an exit interview. Yeah. So let's first start with what you'll be doing at this new job with the NPR something network. Member network. Member network. Well, so as you know, you know, there's about 260 member stations of NPR across the country. KUAF is one. Um I'm going to be on the team that works with those stations, management at those stations, program directors, um, to help them navigate, you know, all of the things that NPR offers, programs, services, digital programs, digital services. So kind of being a liaison um, for a group of probably around 100 member stations. Whoa. Yeah. (laughs) That's a lot. Are they geographically in one swath? Yes, so I don't I don't have my um, portfolio yet, but I do know that they are going back to organizing them by geography, which I think is the right thing to do. 
Well, congratulations on Thank that. you. Thank you. Let's now talk about how – so it's been – because you've had two tenures at KUIF. Yes. About 10, 12 years total? Tw- I would say 12 total. Well, let's say 12. Then. <laughs> uh, you were membership director. Yes. Left to go to KUT in Austin. Yes. Then you worked at Heifer. I did. Then you came back. Yes. You were membership director again. I was. And then you became GM about five years ago. That's that. You wrapped it up. <laughs> <laughs> Why did you want to become GM? Um, wow, that's such a good question. I think that, you know, I was drawn to working at KUAF because uh, it's such a great community sort of stalwart. I mean, it is, it's been a part of my life since I was growing up here. It's a part of my parents' lives. Um, and so I wanted to be a part of that. And then, you know, being here and then working for some other, especially KUT, another station and learning some more about other nonprofit um, organization and fundraising, you know, coming back here, I just felt like there was, um, there was, there were things that we could achieve, you know, and, and being in a leadership position, I could make some decisions uh, that I think would uh, have expanded perhaps our offerings in our audience, but also expand our revenue, diversify it. Um, and, you know, it just radio is rapidly changing. I mean, mm-hmm. it's like we don't even have a cliche for it anymore. It's just so quick how things change. So I do, um, I think I was also eager to kind of help position us in a place where uh, we're we're similar to a lot of media that's happening in the country where we truly are a multimedia outlet now and not just a radio station. Podcasts. We have HD signals. We have a YouTube channel. We've got social media. You know, we've, we, we really, um, you have to be multimedia. Now we focus primarily on audio and radio because we are experts at it, but we also want to be able to get that content in front of as many people as possible in order to do that. We kind of have to work in multimedia. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. You started on August 1st, 2019. Six months later. The world was different. <laughs> pandemic. <laughs> yes. Which no GM plans for, let alone one who's only been doing it for six months. What was that like? During the pandemic, um, I feel like everybody at KUAF really had a very strong understanding of this is kind of what we're here for. This is what we've been not trained on necessarily, but we've been the steady presence of information in so many people's lives that we felt that responsibility. That's something you've talked with the staff a lot about over the last five years is that now there are so many other places to get information. How do you remain critical to people and remain, um, you know, something they depend upon. That is, that's another excellent question. <laughs> um, you know, again, like we're in an, an incredible place because KUAF has this loyalty because it grew organically in our community and it's because it's been strong because of community support. I mean, I, I just, there's, we can't really can't um, overstate the importance of that and our listeners and how much you have supported us. But we, we're, we're working toward being able to meet you where you are. Um, I think that that's really the key because you're right. The competition for attention, you and I have had this conversation before, it just continues to be, be higher and higher and higher. So, you know, if we can have a presence on your phone every morning through a daily email and if you 
uh, we can get some kind of uh, local story or national story to you through social media. Um, you know, all of those are touch points where we're hopefully reminding you, you know, that we are here, we're a constant presence, and we do have vitally important information every single day. Um, so it's kind of, it's difficult because you don't want to be in all places at all. You cannot. No, we can't. Yeah. Be in all places at all times. But we are really trying to um, to meet our, our listeners and our followers where they are. You mentioned YouTube channel, HD2, HD3, uh, podcasts. All these have been added over the last 10, 12 years. Mm -hmm. All of them are free yes. to listeners. But not they're us. not free to produce. No. So how do we, not just KUAF and not just public radio, but how do media outlets wrestle with this where there is a certain percentage of the population that expects something to not cost, right? but they all cost us yes. in personnel hours and money? Man, Kyle. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you're not interviewing me for the job. Um, it's, you know, it's... I think we have to explore new ways of raising revenue. Yeah. You know, we don't, the, a tragedy would be us giving this information, uh, making it available to everyone, making sure we're letting you know we're making it available to everyone without a paywall, and then to change that. That is not what we're looking for. Right. We want this to be available um, to anyone, regardless of their ability to pay for anything. But... We do know, I mean, in a rough sense, you know, the 80-20 rule applies. We, we've got about 15 to 20% of our listeners who are donors who fund the work we're doing, plus grants and some other things. But if we can um, offer some other ways for listeners to participate and be able to uh, give some money, I think that's worth exploring. You know, ticketed events are what a lot of other radio stations are doing, uh, giving you that special access um, and giving you a special experience. Um you know, we're going to have an event in the middle of March, uh, sort of un uh, rolling out these new music programs. And I think that it's a fun model that we're kind of playing with where people vote for their favorite DJ set by by making a donation. Um, you know, just public radio was able to exist for a very long time on that on air fundraising model. Sustainers kind of broke that mold, mm -hmm. and we're just learning that it continues to change and evolve. You had a lot of ideas when mm -hmm. you started. Mm -hmm. Some of them got implemented. Some didn't right. because of the challenges, be it financing, be it whatever. Yeah, technology. I yeah. mean, there's, there's, there's many, many obstacles. I do think that it's interesting because and, – and we want people to be able to listen to the radio station easily and get information and not have to think twice about honestly how this is being delivered to you. But in the building, you know, um, running a public radio station, you are navigating in a space between uh, FCC regulations, Corporation for Public Broadcasting requirements, your licensees, policies and procedures, which is the University of Arkansas for us, and then kind of this, you know, journalistic standards. I mean, we there's a lot of thought that goes into the decisions that we make here because we have to be compliant with a lot of different things. What will you be able to tell the 100 plus stations that you're a liaison for with NPR that you might not have been able to tell them if you'd taken this job five years ago? 
Well, that's, um... You know, I think that, I think that any station, we're, we're just so unique, Kyle. <laughs> because uh, small staff, uh, mid-sized market, creating so much local content. It just is not really done on the scale with for stations of our size that have our size staff. So we're a bit of an outlier anyway. But I mean, I would say that any any station, no matter your size, is capable of making some of these changes. And the biggest thing uh, is that kind of that transformation into digital listening and the pandemic put that on fast forward. Mm -hmm. I mean, we knew it was coming and we'd been tracking it for a long time, but you get rid of the daily commute, uh, then you're at home and all of a sudden you're asking your smart speaker to play KUAF. That's the way you're listening to KUAF now, not the radio in your car. So it changed rapidly. And I think that a lot of stations are, are struggling. I mean, I know they are because we struggle as well, even though we're pretty uh, far along that track. So, one thing I would say is that I do truly believe that any station of any size can start to make these kind of changes um, and that it's it's a good thing to be thinking about on the horizon because we have an aging listenership and we have an aging donor base. So we got to get to it now. Finally, what would those of us who are left after you take the job with NPR – that sounds like a sitcom or something. <laughs> Those of us who are left. And, I, and, and, you know, we in just the last six months, we've had a number of people leave for a wide variety of reasons. Yeah. Family illness, to be closer to family, yeah. retirement. Yeah. Uh, new opportunities. New opportunities, better, newer, better, let's be honest, newer, better paying opportunities for a couple. True. Um, what would you say to us, those of us staying here, who apparently money isn't a motivation for? <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um. God, that you guys are just so important to the community. I mean, uh, it's weird. I think about going back to just being a listener and like what that's even going to be like to listen to the station, hmm. not in the role that I'm in. And it just, it brings me sort of back into that space of like, you guys, we listen to you every day. You are the trusted voice, I tell Daniel, I creep him out by saying, you know, you, you were with me in the shower this morning <laughs> as I was getting ready. Um, you know, Pete Hartman's voice in the afternoon. It, it's These are things that are kind of intangible, and they are about the very personal connection that you get through radio, through the theater of the mind, and through just the reliability and uh, the constant presence. So I just, you, you guys are immensely, immensely important to so many people, even to the point where, which I get, you know, you can't really think about it. You know, right. it's like we do in the vinyl hour. I was like pretending no one was listening. Cause if you really start to think about it, it you could freak yourself out pretty well, but a lot of people are listening and relying on you guys every single day. And the work that you're doing with Ozarks at large is stellar. I mean, just stellar work. I will send you a best wishes email on Monday, and it'll probably be dot, dot, dot. Hey, somebody called wanting to know how to change their membership to $5 more a month. You're going to still get some of those emails from me for a little while. No, no, no. That's good. That's good. I will do that. Anytime people want to increase what they're giving, I will be here to make that happen. Thank you, Lee. Thank you, Kyle.
Ozarks at Large is a production of 91.3 KUAF Fayetteville. Contributors today include Jack Travis, Paul Gatling, Leah Uribe, Sophia Narani, and for the final time as KUAF General Manager, Lee Wood. Matthew produced the show in the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. I'm Kyle Kellums. I'm Matthew Moore.